First, it was the lawyers. Trump attorneys John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani were subpoenaed to testify by the Fulton County District Attorney in Georgia about their involvement in Trump's scheme to overturn the election results in that state. The DA also subpoenaed three other lawyers whose names you may remember from the January 6 hearings, Jenna Ellis, Cleta Mitchell, and Kenneth Chesborough. All of them appeared before the special grand jury in Fulton County. At the same time those subpoenas went out, the Fulton County DA also subpoenaed Senator Lindsey Graham, again related to his involvement in that scheme. For context, 10 days after the 2020 election, Senator Graham placed a phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. The Georgia Secretary of State told the Washington Post at the time that he was stunned by Graham's request to toss out huge swaths of legally cast ballots. But a few days later, Senator Graham denied he'd ever said such a thing. Instead, he said he just wanted to talk about the process for future elections. Did you or did you not ask him to throw out votes? No, that's ridiculous. I talked to him about how you verify signatures. I suggested if you go forward, can you change it to make sure that a bipartisan team verifies signatures? That post-election phone call quickly became a focus of the district attorney's criminal investigation. Senator Graham fought his subsequent subpoena to come and testify, but the fighting didn't work. And so Senator Graham also wound up in the hot seat before that Fulton County grand jury. Then there was former Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was also called to testify. Meadows had been part of that infamous phone call where then President Trump pressured elections officials to find him 11,000 votes to tip the election in his favor. Meadows also traveled to Georgia on Trump's behalf to monitor the state's audit of the vote. And so Meadows was ordered to testify before the grand jury. But to this day, we have no reporting to confirm he ever actually did. Then there was Mike Flynn, the Trump ally and conspiracy theorist who advocated that Trump declare martial law and seize voting machines after the election. He was also forced to testify. So a lot of key people from a lot of key moments, all of them among the 75 people who were called to testify before that Fulton County grand jury. And now all those people, at least the ones I just mentioned, are presumably on the phones with their lawyers trying to recall exactly what they said in those hearings. And that is because today, three parts of the special grand jury's report were released on a judge's orders. It confirmed that a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. Translation, at least one of the witnesses who appeared before that grand jury appears to have lied and could end up in jail. Today, reporters caught up with Senator Lindsey Graham, who said he was confident he hadn't perjured himself before rushing out of the room to avoid answering more questions. Yes, I'm very confident. I have no idea. Uh what they're going to do. I'll just leave that to them. So you're confident you're not one of the ones who perjured themselves? I'm confident. The newly released portions of the report also note that the grand jury found by unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election. So you can add that to the pile of official groups in Georgia that have found Trump's claims of widespread voter fraud to be patently false. Former President Trump, for his part, used the release of this report to prematurely declare victory. On his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump claimed the report amounted to, quote, total exoneration, 
noting that the sections of the report released today do not mention his name once. They really actually don't mention many names at all. Of course, one potential reason Trump's name does not appear in the sections of the report released today could be because he is still the subject of the criminal investigation, one where the DA may soon have to decide whether or not to charge him with a crime. With the special grand jury's work now finished, that decision about whether or not to bring criminal charges against the former president, that decision could come any day now. Joining us now is Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Mr. Moore, thanks for being here. I just want to start with that, the breadcrumbs that we are following today uh, upon the release of, admittedly, a, a short section of this report. The phrase one or more witnesses mm-hmm. um, in the sentence may have committed perjury. Is that meaningful to you? Well, I'm glad to be with you tonight. Um, I'll tell you, I don't know that anybody who appeared before the grand jury ought to be taking great comfort uh, in anything that was said. Uh, And and they probably should be calling their lawyers. And if they're not, they've they've wasted an afternoon to get somebody to represent them. Um, You know, it's we're in unusual waters here and it's really an uncharted territory because you don't see these reports in Georgia. I mean, we don't use special purpose grand juries very often. Um, We typically just have a criminal grand jury. Uh, and so there's really no playbook, no go-by uh, for this this type of report. Uh, and here, um, you know, the, the special purpose grand jury uh, sent some things out. The judge redacted uh, most of the report. And I think he did that sort of balancing the interests of making sure the public had access to some information at the same time protecting the DA's investigation and protecting uh, the, the due process rights of potential defendants in the case. And so um, we're, we're, we're seeing something that's not a normal occurrence uh, in the Superior Courts of Fulton County. Um, it is unusual to have a grand jury say that uh, they didn't believe some of the witnesses. Uh, that may happen at times with a prosecutor in the confines of the grand jury room, but not necessarily uh, in, in a public uh, filing like this or in a public report that gets, gets put out. My guess is at the end of the day, you're going to find that those people who challenge the subpoenas, who uh, filed sort of frivolous claims of privilege and other things to keep from having to testify before the grand jury and then ultimately did, um, that you'll find some correlation likely between those names and the people that the grand jury thought were being less than forthcoming and less than candid with them uh, in in Fulton County. Yeah. One of those names that appears in bright lights is that of Senator Lindsey Graham, who where we already know that there is a disagreement between two people, including him, involved in a sort of central part of the scheme. The secretary of state of Georgia, Brad Brad Raffensperger, says that Senator Graham asked him to reject votes. Senator Graham says he did not. Assuming right. they both said the same thing to the grand jury, that means that one of them is lying. Is that am I am I doing the math wrong here? No, you're do, you're doing it right. And the problem for Senator Graham is that uh, Secretary Raffensperger made no real secret about it when it happened. Is he he went on the you know in in public and made some public comments about how he felt about the call and what he thought the purpose of the call was. And so those sort of contemporaneous statements uh, at the time are going to come back to bite uh, Senator Graham if, in fact, he's one of the people that the grand jury was was talking about. But remember, this is just a report. It's almost like a, a recommendation to the DA that she can take or leave or she can take parts of it. She can reject the whole thing and put it in the file drawer and never look at it and do what she wants to do. Um, this does not mean that she will move forward with perjury charges. It just means that there's a, a, some a grand jury here and some members of the grand jury who felt like they 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 weren't getting the full story. So, you know, time will tell if she wants to bring a perjury charge. My guess is she's going to have her plate full with other likely defendants in the case. 
uh, and she may decide that, that that's enough uh, at this time. But we, we'll see. I mean, th- this report, you know, you, you can't have beef stew without carrots and potatoes and beef. Well, we kind of got the carrots and potatoes here, but we're still waiting on the beef uh, to see uh, what's at the end of the day is going to shake out in this investigation. I'm going to assume that's a Brunswick stew uh, metaphor <laughs> to just use that's some just, Georgia parlance. Right. That's just that's just a good beef stew. <laughs> so you got to have the carrots but, and the potatoes, but we, you, you, we're waiting on the beef. Um, just real quick, Trump, the president, former president, saying he is fully exonerated by this report, which, as you point out, is... You know, it's not a it's not a it's not a charging document. It is basically Georgia's version of the January 6th committee. Right. Like they they have a lot of information. They're issuing their recommendations. It's up to the D.A. to, to decide what to do with it. Um, do you think that the president is on any solid ground here in claiming exoneration? <laughs> no, I mean, he's putting more spin on that than, than any than a basketball player with a with a ball. I mean, there's there's no. There's no comfort he can take in this report in the silliness of it, of his, of his statement, is that the judge said specifically, I'm taking the names out. I'm taking the recommendations out who, for who the grand jury said should be indicted. So to say now, well, my name's out, it just is, is sort of laughable at this, at this point. Um, and it's not surprising that he wasn't called to testify before the grand jury. Typically, a prosecutor won't do that. If they've got a target, a subject of an investigation, you don't bring them in to, to put on a circus in front of the grand jury, claiming the fifth time and time again and over and over. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really surprised at all. And, and, and this, is, this is just classic Trumpian spin that, uh, that, that is meaningless. Uh, and it may provide some fodder for other channels and some supporter somewhere. Um, but it, but it's a it's a completely meaningless statement uh, that he put out. My name is not in a report with no names. Right. <laughs> that is That's effectively right. well, my, the my whole name's logic. Not, my name's not in it either, so I guess that means I'm and, okay, too. I mean, mine, this, the whole thing's kind of silly. <laughs> mine, mine is also not in there, so I right. am exonerated as well. Right. Michael Moore, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us this evening. It's, Great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Andrew, I just said yesterday night to you, camp out here, please, because we can never. I just want to talk to you about this all the time. Um, what is your reading of the, again, admittedly scant Very literature scant. that we have yes. on the grand jury's findings? How, yeah. do you, how are you? What is interesting to you in the, in the pieces we've been getting? Well, first, the, um, you know, I've been totally exonerated. That rang a bell because, of course, yes. you know, with, uh, unlike the eight pages that we have, we had 400 pages yes. where Donald Trump said he was totally exonerated, which he wasn't. Yeah. Um, here, it's so silly because it's, you know, eight very, very redacted pages. Um, so just to highlight something that I think probably you alluded to, but just to point out something that's sort of interesting to me is that you had unanimity on this issue of, you know, was there fraud, sort of widespread fraud in the election? And it was interesting that that was a unanimous vote. Mm-hmm. But the issue of whether um, people, anybody had committed perjury was just by a majority. And that tells me that there are going to be sort of critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a un- just a block of people who were saying all the same thing. 
So that was like one small piece of tea leaf reading. And and in the the summary that we got, they said you're going to find in the full report who voted yes and no on certain things. Yes, which right? is fascinating because as a, a sort of former you know trial lawyer, um, you know the idea that a jury is going to give you their breakdown in a in a case, uh, you know, it's, it, that just doesn't happen where yeah. you get a breakdown and sort of this is what the grand jury thinks and this is who thought what. Usually, you just get. There's an indictment or there's not an indictment. You don't get that it's, you know, 14 people or 17 people and these people dissented. So here it was fascinating to me that they had such a strong breakdown. Do you think that could be at all an issue? I mean, and I'm reading, I'm I'm an amateur legal scholar, very amateur legal scholar here. But it seems like the DA has some civilian cover if she does pursue an indictment here, right? Absolutely. She has the folk of Georgia making the call on these plays. Absolutely. And if we now, and if if she does go forward with, you know, high stakes indictments, and we then read the full report and learn that, well, not all the folk of Georgia wanted to move forward on, for example, a criminal indictment of Senator Lindsey Graham or Donald Trump, does that complicate her mission at all? You know, I don't think so. I mean, it remains to be seen, you know, if it's a close call and you really had a lot of dissent, maybe. Um, but you might find that it that it's sort of more diverse when it comes to maybe some Georgia electors, but not with respect to Donald Trump. So it remains to be seen. But I, I just don't think that's going to come out in a way that at trial that's going to hurt somebody. I mean, at the end of the day, your analogy to this is like the January 6th committee vis-a-vis DOJ is a really good one. Thank because you. it's sort of not... <laughs> um, I'll take the yes, wins okay, where I okay. can get them. I mean, because it's, this is interesting and it's nice to know what they thought and you know they were sitting with the evidence. But at the end of the day, the person who has to make the call is the DA Mm -hmm. and the grand jury she is going to go to. So there will be a second grand jury that will decide just the issue of is there probable cause. Um, So it really, this is sort of, yes, you can get cover in the same way the January 6th committee can give DOJ cover. Exactly. um, You know, this can can help her in her sort of public acceptance of, you know, if there is the first ever indictment of a former president, having sort of public acceptance of why it's being done and why there's some legitimacy is going to be critical, more critical than any criminal case they could ever have. I certainly was involved in or that I think any of us have ever seen. Yeah, certainly. And and the stakes from a state, you know, from the from a state D.A. to go, you know, shoot for the moon, as it were, with the former president. Um, What do you see as the time frame here? You make the very important point that there's another grand jury that is involved here. It's not like Fonnie Willis just is off to the races. What should we be expecting in terms of timeline? So one thing that you it's not like the new grand jury has to reinvestigate everything and hear from the same witnesses. All of that can be read in um, so that you don't have a lot of time for that. I also find it interesting when I'm thinking about the time frame that we're not hearing about new witnesses being called into that grand jury. So my suspicions, and it's just that, is that what she is doing is preparing all for all of the onslaught that she is going to have to be ready for when she brings an indictment. So, for instance, there are all sorts of motions that will be made if the former president is charged a change of venue um, to take the case federally. Um, she's got to prepare for that to challenge the, the grand jury, to seek minutes of the grand jury. So I can see her really wanting to have all of her ducks in a row so that when this is brought, all of that is thought through. 
Um, and so that really does remind me in that sense, when we, I was in the special counsel investigation, yeah. you know, there's a lot of work that goes into things other than the actual charge um, and being ready for the court fight that's about to happen. Oh, I mean, uh, unlike anything we've ever seen. Absolutely. Speaking of federal investigations, uh, I do want to call your attention to because I do like talking about subpoenas. It's the thing. <laughs> it's the thing that gets me up in the morning. Um Vice President Mike Pence has been served a subpoena uh, to testify as part of the DOJ's investigation under special counsel Jack Smith. And there's been a lot of back and forth about the reasons he's invoking for not having to comply with the subpoena. He was asked point blank last night by uh, our own Ron Hilliard about whether he would just testify voluntarily. I want to play that sound because it's very telling. The issue here is whether or not a vice president who served as president of the Senate should be subject to a subpoena to appear in court. But would you voluntarily the Justice Department has insisted The Justice Department has insisted on that and on reserving that right in the event this were a matter that would go to trial. And uh, we just simply made it clear to them we think it is not only unprecedented, but it's unconstitutional. And so we'll... Uh, um, would you be open but, to voluntarily? I, but I will tell you, look, I've, as I've said, I've written extensively about this. I've spoken extensively. Uh, it's different than justice, going under oath. Well, no. <laughs> really? I mean, he could just testify. Well, there is this issue that, you know, why not just do it voluntarily? And I have to say, when I was in the government, I thought, you have an obligation yeah. to the public. Um, and if you're called, you're supposed to speak. You're, you're paid by the taxpayer. I know this may sound very naive, but it's like, you know, when I was listening to Nikki Haley sort of dodge with a sort of, I don't kick, you know, to the side, I only kick forward. I was like, you know, you're, you're running for the highest office in the land. You have an obligation to not spin. You actually need to answer the questions. So this sort of, I thought the Von, um, uh, von Hilliard. Um, questioning was fantastic because it was like, why are you just not doing this out of your sense of patriotism mm-hmm. in terms of what the public said? And then, you know, whatever the chips are, they fall where they made. And so the truth is, is you know, could help somebody or could hurt somebody. That's not your job is to not spin that. Um, but I have to say one thing I will say is the speech and debate clause, clause. issue is going to be more complicated than people think. Um, I Which think is the defense he's in, or it's, it's it, what he's invoking right now is a reason for why it, he shouldn't. Exactly. Be and it, I, I don't think that people who say there's no ground for it, it's just no basis. Um, I think that says too much. I think this is really a novel issue. He does have this sort of odd dual role as vice president. So he, you know, he, he sits in the White House now, but not that long ago, the vice presidents used to sit at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, their salary comes from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is this interesting um, hybrid of a role, and he's going to play that up. Um, I don't think it will prevent him from testifying completely, um, but I do think that this is not one where we should just say... Dismiss it, Ron. Dismissive, right. I mean, we all know why he's doing it, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a, some kernel there that, that may the court may agree with him on. It's like Star Trek for law, going where no man <laughs> has ever gone before. This whole Another chapter. great analogy. <laughs> just rolling off of me. Andrew Weissman, thank you, sir, for your time and wisdom, as always. We have quite a bit to get to tonight. We will talk to the reporter whose latest reporting is raising new questions about just exactly when and how a former high-level FBI counterintelligence official got tangled up with a controversial Russian oligarch. And if you are wondering whether other states are following George's lead and investigating potential criminal behavior in and around the 2020 election, we have got some news for you. That's just ahead. 
Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Georgia wasn't the only state where President Trump falsely claimed that there was election fraud. Georgia wasn't the only state where Republicans issued a separate slate of fake electors. Those schemes also unfolded in New Mexico and Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. And the Justice Department is starting to zero in on them. In December, special counsel Jack Smith sent grand jury subpoenas to state and local elections officials from six states, basically every battleground state with the fake elector scheme except for New Mexico. He's seeking any and all communications those officials had with Trump, his campaign, and his allies. And while it is notable that a fake elector scheme touched that many states, the efforts to upend Michigan's election results were particularly zealous. Just two weeks after the presidential election, Trump himself summoned two Michigan Republican legislative leaders to the White House. Do you remember that? It was right as he was contesting the state's election results. They met Trump and those officials for nearly an hour. Despite that pressure, the two legislators left the meeting promising to follow the law and follow the normal process regarding Michigan's electors. But the attempt to subvert the will of Michigan's voters did not end there. On December 14th, 2020, a group of Republicans who signed onto their own certificate to award Michigan's 16 electoral college votes to Trump, they actually tried to break into the state house to deliver their electoral votes, just tried to blow past, <laughs> blow past security. Ultimately, law enforcement blocked them. Those fake electors even considered entering Michigan's capital the night before and hiding out overnight to ensure they would be inside the state Senate chambers on the 14th to deliver those fake votes. In the end, Joe Biden was certified the winner by a little over 154,000 votes. Though Trump did not make a call to the Michigan Secretary of State to find another 154,000 votes, at least that we know of, the brazenness of his attempt to steal the election in that state, it rivals the scheme in Georgia which is perhaps why Attorney General Dana Nessel opened an investigation into the Michigan fake elector scheme and then referred it to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Michigan in January of 2022. And last month, she reopened her criminal probe into the elector scheme, saying, quite candidly, yes, we are reopening our investigation because I don't know what the federal government plans to do. Meanwhile, the claims of election fraud have not ended, even though it is the year 2023. While Michigan is busy getting to the bottom of what happened in 2020, it is also moving quickly to try to insulate the state's election infrastructure from the rot of election denialism in the years to come. 
Joining us now is one woman who is at the front of that fight, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Madam Secretary, thank you for being here tonight. I, I want to get me. Th- thank you for coming on the show. I know you are busy doing the important work of trying to save democracy. And I want to get to some of the measures that you are proposing in your state to ensure the, the sanctity of our democracy. But I first just want to start, if you could, with, you know, th- this moment where we're reexamining just the outlandish, brazen, anti-democratic efforts to steal the election in 2020 and remind us of what it was like to live through what happened in Michigan in 2020. I mean, it was a constant, everyday, constant stage of whack-a-mole. I mean, to, you know, not to be sort of flippant about it, but every day we would wake up thinking, is this it? Have we protected against every potential challenge? And it really became clear every day that, indeed, every lever was going to be pulled, every tactic was going to be tried day after day after day. After we got through the Electoral College vote and, and had shut down the fake elector scheme, we thought uh, none of us had really anticipated the depths to which people would go all the way up to the tragedy of our U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And in that moment, on January 6th, I realized that we should never underestimate just how far people are willing to go to further their political agenda and overturn the will of the people. As you witness what's unfolding down in Fulton County and the work being done by the district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, the number of high-level Trump officials she has subpoenaed, the testimony she's gotten, the report that's forthcoming, charges or decisions on charges are imminent. Do you think that is a shot in the arm to other state-level officials who are saying, "Okay, we're going to hold these folks accountable just because he is a former president or a, a current senator or whoever it is? doesn't mean that they are insulated from following the law. Absolutely. I mean, and look, truth, law, justice, the Constitution are all on the side of democracy and the will of the people in this case. But if we don't have consequences for those who were a part of what was a very well-coordinated national effort to overturn a presidential election, the valid will of the people, if there are no consequences, then we have no assurance that it won't be tried again. And look, in 2020, people showed up outside my home, outside our state capitol, outside clerks throughout our state's homes. And of course, everything we saw unfold on January sixth occurred. We hope to never experience anything like that again, but we have no assurance that we won't unless there's real consequences that we have yet to see. So I'm grateful that our attorney general in Michigan has said, look, I don't know what the federal government has plans to do on this coordinated effort and seeking justice there, but we in Michigan will seek justice against those who try to affront our uh, voters and take away our voters' voices. And I'm really proud that she continues to lead and, and work with all of us to seek justice Are you for ha- really the anti-democratic efforts we saw in Michigan. Are you heartened by the fact that the DOJ has um, requested documents from Michigan officials? I mean, the special counsel seems to be looking specifically at your state now. Is that—tell me how that ranks in terms of uh, you are. Full stop. You are heartened. Um, When we talk about the efforts that you are engaged in to make sure this does not happen again, could you outline some of them and how they might work? Because election misinformation and election fraud feels like it's to some degree in the groundwater. How do you combat it from the state level? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, one, again, legal consequences and political consequences are key. And voters spoke clearly in Michigan in 2022, rejecting up and down the ticket those who were running on a platform of denying the legitimate results of the 2020 election. So we have the will of the people at our backs to now enact policies that would do any, everything from protecting our election workers from the threats that this misinformation generates to addressing those who intentionally spread disinformation by seeking action there. We want to make it a, a against the law to intentionally lie to voters about their rights, about their democracy, and really uh, address these deceptive practices, while also ensuring that our election system itself is protected from uh, the, the evolution of what that misinformation generates. And we hope we're working with other states as well, because this, again, wasn't just about Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, all of it. Uh, we, we're all part of it. Um, but we hope to lead in Michigan by showing what real consequences look like and accountability look like and preparation to prevent against future efforts. Are you at all worried about when you talk about criminalizing misinformation? Are you worried about wading into the debate over civil liberties that's like unfolding, for example, in social media? I mean, does that complicate what you're trying to do at all? Uh, we respect and, and we'll, we'll respect the parameters of the First Amendment. But just like it's, you know, it's not uh, appropriate or, or legal to lie to people about what's in certain products and commercial advertising, it should not be appropriate for people to intentionally lie and spread misinformation uh, about our elections and the rights of voters, especially when we know so often they are connected directly to threats of violence against the very people who make our democracy work. So in Michigan, we're working to protect the people who protect democracy and protect the people who participate in it, the voters, from fraud, from deceptive practices, and from any type of intimidation or violence at the polls. It's like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for democracy. Michigan Secretary- For the voters. <laughs> for the voters. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thanks for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the latest twist in the saga of the Chinese spy balloon and all the other stuff we shot out of the sky after that. Plus, new reporting raises concerns about a former FBI official indicted over his work for a controversial Russian oligarch, specifically about when that relationship began. We'll talk to the reporter who's been getting all the scoops. That's next. Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. During his tenure at the FBI, he oversaw roughly 150 FBI agents in New York and handed the, headed the recruitment of foreign spies to come work for the U.S. He handled some of the most highly sensitive intelligence in his role as the FBI head of counterintelligence in New York. And now he has been federally indicted. 
twice. His name is Charles McGonigal. He left the FBI in 2018, but this past month, the Justice Department charged McGonagall with taking and concealing over $200,000 from an Albanian intelligence officer while still working at the FBI. They also have charged McGonagall with violating U.S. sanctions by working for notorious Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who has close ties to Vladimir Putin. Now, the FBI alleged in its indictment that McGonagall took money from Deripaska after McGonagall left the FBI in 2018, and the investigation does not appear to concern espionage. But new reporting today from Insider is posing a handful of concerning questions about when exactly that Russian relationship began. Here's a report. In 2018, McGonagall traveled to London, where he met with a Russian contact who was under surveillance by British authorities, two U.S. intelligence sources told Insider. Insider was able to determine the year, but not the month of the meeting. The fourth source noted that regardless of whether the meeting occurred before or after McGonagall retired from the FBI in September of 2018, it suggested a serious and extended relationship. What does this all mean in terms of McGonagall's Russian contacts? Did he foster these relationships while he was at the FBI? And if so, when? Also, remember, roughly two years before this meeting, the FBI was the center of some very highly controversial work, including an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails and a probe into the Trump campaign's possible links to Russia. So what can this new reporting add to our understanding of this mess? Or as one source described it, what the F was he thinking? Joining us now is the reporter on that piece, Matt Schwartz, senior correspondent at Insider. He was the first to report on the existence of the McGonagall investigation in September and has been the lead reporter on the story with scoops galore. (laughs) Matt, it's great to have you here. Uh, Thanks for joining me. I want to get right to the the timeline here. Um, 2018, we know this meeting happened. You suggest in the piece that it may have preceded uh, you know, the, the correspondence between McGonagall and this Russian asset may have preceded the actual meeting. Can you tell us, you know, how you've tried to pinpoint the month in which this meeting happened and, you know, what intelligence you have about the degree to which there was any back and forth prior to the meeting? Certainly. So we know that McGonagall retired from the FBI in September of 2018, and we know that this meeting with a Russian in London who was under UK surveillance also occurred in 2018. But we don't know whether he met with the Russian before or after his retirement. Um, I've tried to pin that down. If anyone out there knows, please reach out. (laughs) I've also tried to pin down exactly who this Russian is. Uh, There are some indications in the indictments that suggest it could be possibly Oleg Deripaska, but we don't know that. Uh, I reached out to Deripaska's people and uh, they do not want to comment about this because they have their own issues going with DOJ. Um, now, what we do know is that uh, Charlie McGonagall did travel to London and did meet with a Russian who was important enough for the British to be watching. And we know that the British uh, were concerned enough about this meeting to alert the FBI to actually ring up the U.S. Embassy in London and tell the FBI's legal attache there, hey, this happened and we're really concerned about it. We didn't, it, are, are you doing, are you, you know, I, I don't know exactly what was said, but they were, they were worried. And we know that, that that alert that went from the UK to the US was part of, uh, at least part of the predication or the beginning of the FBI's investigation into McGonagall. So until that happened, it, it, it seems likely that the FBI may not have been aware that, that, that there was a problem here. 
Matt, why would McGonagall go to him? I mean, he, he's for, former head of counterintelligence for the FBI in New York. He must have known that this Russian he was meeting with was under surveillance by the Brits. Wouldn't he have known that? Uh, it is very likely that he would have known that because he would have been running the same kind of intelligence and counterintelligence operations in New York City. Uh, that, you know, that was his job. So he would have known to some degree the degree to which, you know, surveillance from, from, from the British would have penetrated London. Now, it's possible that he was just, you know, kind of dumb and greedy and, and did it anyway. It's also possible that he thought this meeting was above board. Um, maybe uh, he thought this sort of behavior where, you know, if it, if it happened after his retirement, maybe he thought going to work or, or speaking to this person for whatever reason was normal. Um, it's also possible that he thought he was recruiting this person as a source. Um, and it, if that's true, it, it, sometimes those kind of relationships can go both ways and someone doesn't know what they're getting into. But um, it, is, it is very strange that someone in his role, um, you know, would, uh, would basically be caught uh, meeting with someone who both the British and his former employers at the FBI seem to have felt rather strongly that he should not have been meeting with. Um, so why did he do this? And, and this is something that the folks I talked to for this story asked, asked over and over again. You know, what, what was he thinking here? Uh, because it, it, really, it really seems like um, either a, a, a real miscalculation or, or a blunder uh, that, that you wouldn't expect someone in such a senior role to make when, when the stakes are this high. Matt Schwartz, your reporting on this has been relentless and illuminating. Thank you for all of it. We will follow the story as you post. Senior correspondent at Insider, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Up next, memo to all Republican balloon hunters out there. A White House announcement today highlights what can happen when you shoot first and ask questions later. Stay with us. First, you gotta fill the 10-foot-tall balloon with lots of helium. Add 150 kids and presto, you have real science in action. Science in action. That was the eighth grade class of Longfellow Middle School in Berkeley, California, launching a high-altitude balloon as a science project in the year 2015. Students as young as middle school launch high-altitude balloons like this all the time. It is a great hands-on science experiment that is made easy because balloons like this are cheap and easy for civilians to get their hands on. You can buy a high-altitude balloon for as little as $12. An Illinois high-altitude balloon hobbyist group that uses balloons like these has now come forward to say that their balloon, which they were using to float ham radio transmitters, went missing. It was last spotted over the Yukon Territory in Alaska on the same day that the U.S. government shot down an unidentified object of similar description, altitude, and location with a Lockheed Martin F-22. So there is a non-zero chance that the U.S. government used a $400,000 missile to shoot a ham radio transmitter on a $12 balloon out of the sky. Today, President Biden confirmed that other than the initial Chinese spy balloon, the three other mystery objects the U.S. shot down were likely scientific or civilian balloons. Republicans in Congress have been jumping up and down about how much of an emergency these balloons are and how everything needs to be shot out of the sky basically as soon as we see it. But maybe we need to cool our jets here. Literally. 
Joining us now is Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post. Shane, thank you for being here. The balloon, the balloon as science experiment is something that's happening in middle schools all over the country. And now maybe we're using F-22 fighter jets to shoot them down. Is this the new normal? Do you feel like the Pentagon has to adopt a new political posture as or not, a new posture because of politics on the Chinese balloon? Well, you know, it, it, as sad as I feel for some of these students whose balloons were shot down and, and the search for them has been suspended, apparently, in Canada. So, you know, how much is your science project worth if they're not going to go looking for it, I guess? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that the Pentagon is it's, it's a very awkward position that they're in, as you pointed out, where they're scrambling jets. And the reason that we should say that they're spotting these balloons is they've recalibrated the radars and there's all kinds of different intelligence components that go into spotting these things. But now, yes, they, they have to go up and check and see if they're, if they're threats. This is untenable. The, obviously, the Pentagon cannot scramble F-22s every time a science project or a commercial weather balloon uh, passes on their radar. So I think that right now they are uh, very eagerly trying to figure out how they discern Chinese surveillance balloons, uh, which we are all familiar with, from science projects like this, because, no, they cannot afford to be sending jets up after, you know, small uh, balloons floating in the air. I mean, personally, I was surprised that the U.S. government can't tell the difference between what could be a foreign government's spy balloon and a middle school weather project. Did that surprise you? I mean, and certainly the government isn't admitting that this is a middle school science project as yet, but that, that, that the, the distinction couldn't be made, given the technology we have, seems surprising to me. Yeah, it did, actually. And it's funny because, you know, I've been writing for a number of years about, you know, so-called UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomena, which we've talked about before, about, you know, are these, you know, little green men or are these drones or are these balloons? What are they? And the military has been looking very closely at this. What we think has happened, though, in the past several months where we've we've seen both this, like, Chinese spy balloon that came across the continental United States recently. There was also one that crashed back in June. This didn't get a lot of attention uh, off the coast of Hawaii. And what our sources have told us is that the intelligence community has taken what they've learned about these actual surveillance balloons and kind of used it to understand more about other objects that are out there floating in the atmosphere. And they've recalibrated the radar in recent days. And people have used this analogy of if you're like on a shopping website and you sort of are unselecting certain boxes on that website, you're going to get tons more hits, maybe things that you filtered out that you didn't want to see before. Now we're going to appear for you as options. The radar that the military has used essentially is like that. For a lot of these slow-moving, high-altitude objects, they just filtered that out. They thought it's not a missile, it's not a fighter plane, it's probably harmless, we don't need to look at it. Now they're looking at it because a giant, you know, Chinese spy balloon floated across the United States. That's what's prompting a lot of this reaction, I think. And they'll hopefully calibrate the radar to not have to do this every time. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, there seems like there are better uses for our radar. I, but, you know, much has been made over the sort of ridiculousness of this situation and the politics of it. But just from a national security perspective, I mean, how, you know, how developed is the Chinese spy balloon in terms of actual intelligence gathering? I mean, how concerned should we be as, as it is a component of the Chinese spy program? 
Yeah, officials that I've talked to, U.S. officials have said it doesn't rank very high in the Chinese hierarchy, China's hierarchy of intelligence gathering capabilities. They have satellites that can do a lot of this work. They have very sophisticated computer hacking operations that can take information off computer networks. The balloons, though, have a certain advantage in that they can uh, hover over or loiter over a certain target for a longer period of time, maybe take pictures at different resolutions, gather up communication signals. The satellites that are spinning around the Earth Earth maybe have only like a few minutes to take pictures or gather intelligence as they pass around the target. So the balloons are useful, but what U.S. officials are saying is that they're not a really high priority. They're part of a broader program, and they're pretty confident that this balloon that crossed over the U.S. earlier in February did not gather a lot of useful information. Shane, I just think it's amazing that middle school students can um, are, are, well, first of all, A, it's a, it's a good time to be alive when middle school students have the tech that is readily available to also the Chinese for a spy program. Also, balloons bonus come in different shapes, like, for example, Pikachu or a football. And that then, I would assume, makes them appealing to all kinds of people across the globe. Shane Harris, thank you for your time and wisdom this evening. Thanks, Alex. Good to talk to you. That is the show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.